Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. That's a very Easter-style passage, isn't it? The Last Supper, if you haven't picked it up. Uh, we're talking about an Easter passage because we're headed towards Easter. And we're going we're to take a different look at an Easter-style passage. Uh, but what is interesting as you head towards Easter is it starts to place Jesus up against all of the other great religious leaders. And when you see him against the other great religious leaders like a Buddha who achieved enlightenment, or like Muhammad, for example, who by the age of 60 had united all of Arabia under one single kingdom and faith within that kingdom. When you look at all these other leaders, here's the difference that you see between them. Uh, everyone else of the religious greats seemed to have great success in ministry. And Jesus seems to be at the total other opposite end of the spectrum. We see that in this passage when he says, take this cup, this is my blood spilt for you. When he said, take this bread, this is my body broken for you. He's hinting that this movement of his is going to end in disaster. So it wasn't going to be as successful as you see all the other world's religions. Now, the, the thing for us is that when the great question we've got to ask is the great mystery throughout history has been uh, lots of people looked at the lack of success in this leader in Jesus Christ, and yet it was the thing that had millions of people changing the world. In fact, uh, Rodney Stark, I've mentioned him before, wrote a great book called The Rise of Christianity. If you ever want to read it, it's, a, it's an easy read, but he gives three major ways in which Christians were remarkably different from their pagan neighbours. One of the ways was when the great epidemics of Rome hit, instead of running from the city, they ran into the city. It was different from everyone else. Secondly, when the Christians were persecuted, they, they didn't retaliate in terrorism. They, they took it. They, they accepted it. They didn't fight back. There weren't grudges. Uh, most importantly, in a, in a world in which there were so many race divisions, when the church was formed, all of these races came together. There was no ethnicities in the church. Everyone was the same. Now, here's the thing. Why were Christians so much more compassionate towards the sick? Why were Christians the sort of people that were running into the cities rather than running out of the cities? Why were the Christians, when they're persecuted, not retaliating? Why are the Christians the ones saying that race doesn't matter? Like, were they just modern people? Were they virtuous? Were they ahead of their time? No, it all depended on this. It all depended on what Christians were certain their future would be. You see, when Christians knew that they had a certain future, when they ran into all the sickness and the plagues, there was no fear of death. They knew what their future was going to be. When, when Christians were being persecuted and hit out against, they didn't have to hit back because they were certain of what their future was going to be. Their pagan neighbours, on the other hand, all sorts of different gods, they, they didn't have the same sort of certainty. And it stood out like a sore thumb. It's what made Christianity attractive. And so what we see here is that one of the things that made Christianity explode throughout the countryside and put itself on the map in history is this certainty. Certainty in uncertainty. Now, that's why we come to this passage. Last Supper, Jesus says, he's at the third year of his ministry, they're having dinner in the upper room. Everything's buzzing about Jesus. It, there's a great movement happening. Remember, at one point, there's up to 120 disciples following Jesus, not just the 12 at this time. Word is out that Jesus is in the city. Word is out that Jesus is doing something. There's been multiple stouches with the religious establishment. 
momentum is building for all of this and the disciples are excited. They're having dinner with him. This, we're on the verge of something great here, Jesus. I think we're, 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 we're going to be the next, we're the next big thing. We're, we're the next apple. Like, this is going to be big for us. And, and, and we're like every other good investor, the 12 disciples, we're in early. We're in early amongst you. We're in at the startup phase. And, and then it, it twists and everything goes horribly wrong because they're having a very traditional Jewish meal, the Passover, which is a whole other sermon you can often do at Easter. Uh, a meal in which they remember how the lamb was sacrificed so that blood could be placed over the top of the doorways. So when the angel of death in the time of Pharaoh's reign swept through Egypt, the people who had the blood of the lamb over their door would be saved. And so they've done this for centuries, remembering this. Jesus has this meal. They're remembering this and he radically reinterprets it. Because what he's saying now when he says, when he says, take this cup and take the bread there's cup and there's wine. And one of the disciples says, he's talking about bread and cup, bread rolls and wine. Where's the lamb? And it hits them. He's the lamb. And suddenly the momentum of this movement in our own minds just collapses. And they suddenly get what is really going on here when Jesus says, I will not drink of this wine again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Hang on, they go, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's saying that he's going to die. Now, you know, what, you know what this is like? This, 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 is, this is the equivalent of everyone getting together for a boardroom meeting and the CEO sits down and he says, look, it's a great product. We've had a great run. People are loving what we're doing, but we couldn't secure the finance. And so I hate to tell you, we're closing the doors. Or it's the moment that some of you may have been through where the doctor looks at you and says, it's not looking good. It could be terminal. And I like the disciples because their reaction is our reaction. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whoa. Hang on. We're like got a good trajectory here going, Jesus. You know, hang on. I thought the deal was, I thought the deal was that if you're with God and you said you're God and we get that, we get that, we get that. I thought the deal was that if you're with God, then life goes good, right? Like, uh, we, sh- we win, we succeed, we're being blessed, we're being blessed, right? Life goes good, right? No. And as we know, these guys are about to move into the most tumultuous, arduous, painful, torturous adventure they'd ever seen. And they're, they're the ones sitting with God. How the heck does that work? And here's the question for this series that we've got to look, look through. The question is this, could it be possible that God is still in control even when it doesn't seem like he's active in your life or the world? Because that's what's happened for these guys. They're with God, they're in the midst of it. Now, I reckon there can be no better time than now to answer that question. Have you guys all noticed the dynamic at the moment that I'm calling Trumpitis? Right? I think the, the world has got a big dose of Trumpitis at the moment. It just, is it just me or is it just everyone get going wacky and argumentative? Have you found that? Whether it's on the media, whether it's on Facebook, people have scattered to either corners of the left or the right in society at the moment. 
And the world's got a good dose of Trumpitis. And I think it's this. I think and we see this pattern all throughout the Bible. We see the deep base note of anxiety that is coming to the surface in people's lives when they see the fallibility of the world's leaders. Right, church? If you ever want to see that biblical dynamic played out, go and read the book of Judges. <laughs> and look at the pattern of what happens when people look not to God, but to the world's leaders to give them a sense of security. And so as a result, I'm just, my mind's blown them up. I don't know what to do. I don't want to post anything on Facebook, right? I don't know about you guys. I, I just know any post is going to result in 50 big arguments, 50 comments that's going to happen. I'm just, I'm staying away from the thing. Trumpitis. We feel it, don't we? ISIS, Trump, GFCs. We feel the uncertainty now, the good news is if, if, if ever there was a time for us to come back to this book and have a look at it, then it's during this time of Trumpitis and uncertainty because the thing that we will see from this book, the first point we've got this morning is that when you read this book, here's what you'll find. Uncertainty is nothing new. <laughs> have you guys ever seen that TV show called Wipeout? On Channel 9. Have you seen that? If you haven't seen Wipeout, it, it's one of my favourites. And the kids. I love it. Basically, it's like this obstacle course that people have got to run through. All these padded obstacles that they've got to run through over water. And, and they've got to, run over, got to run over beams, but you're next to a wall that's got a big rubber boxing glove that suddenly a mechanical arm will poof, come out and punch you in the face and knock you off and things go topsy-turvy and platforms fling you off it into the water. Under. You guys seen that? Yeah, good fun. Great fun. Good for a laugh. Now, here's the question. Do you think a competitor in Wipeout gets overly surprised when they cop a, a, a fist in the face? Or when the platform from underneath them suddenly turns them upside down, they end in the water? No way. They know that's the deal. Here's the thing. Life is just one big Wipeout course, if you haven't already noticed. <laughs> We're always copping a fist in the face. The things that we think are stable are constantly upside down, throwing us into the water, right? And so what it means is when we come to this book... Christians should be the first people that are not surprised by the uncertainty of life. Life's uncertain. It's up, it's down, it's left, it's right. You know what? Every single one of your favorite Bible passages comes from a context of extreme uncertainty, right? This is not a book for the rich or this is not a, a book of, of those who have made it in life and need a little bit of you know, spiritual pick-me-up at the end of the day. There's incredible uncertainty in this. Joseph listened as his brothers debated whether to sell or kill him. David awakens one morning to find a rumor that his son's conspiring against him. A frightened mother wrapped her baby in a blanket and puts him in a blanket so the Egyptian soldiers won't kill him. Years later, another mother flees a home with a newborn son to escape the sword of Herod. The Apostle Paul thought that God had called him but finds himself in a Roman prison and writes to us about it, about what to do when God's promises don't seem to be coming true, right? Uncertainty is nothing new and this is the best resource you can go back to when we're in the midst of uncertainty. Back to that question, what do you do if you think that you're with God and things just seem to be getting worse? Now, I think the problem in that is that often when that happens to us and we feel that God is with us and we're with God and things are going, going bad in our lives, here's what we instinctively think. We either think God must have abandoned us or he's mad at us. 
One of the two, right? If things are not going out for us and we're with God, we're his people, then God must be mad at us and he must have abandoned us. But, you know, my favorite biblical example as to how he works is at a place called Dothan. Oh, look it up in your Bibles. Dothan. What a cool little name. First thing that happens at Dothan, you know this story. You know what happened at Dothan, class. That's where Joseph gets thrown into the pit, into the hole. His brothers throw him into the hole. And so if you know Joseph's story, uh, they throw him in there. They think he's going to be killed. Then he gets sold into slavery. Then he's accused of rape. And so he then gets sent to prison. Then he has a dream in prison. That gets interpreted uh, by Pharaoh. He's then raised to the prime ministership. And he eventually saves all of Israel from famine. And he's able to reconcile his brothers and stop his family from tearing itself apart in sin. Wow. All of that over all of those years. And you know what, by the way? After all of that pain... What's really interesting, you know what else happens at at Dothan? Elisha the prophet is under attack. And he cries out to God, help me. And what does God do? He sends chariots of fire. He sends a whole army to rescue the lot. And so Joseph at Dothan says, Lord, help me. I'm in the midst of this. What does he get? Crickets. You know, nothing, just silence. Elisha at exactly the same spot at a different point in time cries exactly the same sort of prayer, God help me. And what does he get? Chariots of fire. How does that work? How does that work? You know the verse in Romans where, God, where Paul says that God's work, I'm convinced that God is working for the good of all those who love him. Where's God in Joseph's situation? Hmm? Here's what it means for you and I. God was, God was always at work. It's back to the big question. What if he doesn't feel like he's active? God was always active in Joseph's situation. It's just that he was actively working in the seeming slowness of the non-answer to Joseph's prayer as he was in the swift, noisy answer to Elisha's prayer. God's never late, by the way. He is always on time in his apparent delays. And what it means for us is that we, we think, we seem to think when there's this uncertainty in our lives and God's not showing up, he's not healing us yet, he hasn't worked out the business yet, he hasn't provided the right partner yet, we think that he's not active. And instead of saying in that, un, in that uncertainty, we think he's mad at us or he's abandoned us, instead of saying, Lord, what good are you working in me through this? And here's, here's why. Here's why that's so critical. What if, what if in all of this Joseph S, God's not turning up in my life? I've got no idea what my future looks like. I've got no idea if I'm going to make it through the week. What if in all of that, that uncertainty is the very vehicle by which God is going to use to make you a person of greatness? You know how this works. I've shared it. It's the, it's the biosphere principle. Right? 20 years ago in Arizona where they built this biosphere, they planted a whole lot of these spruce trees, these big pine trees in the biosphere. This really weird thing happened. Down the track, they found out that these spruce trees that they had planted, once they grew up and mature, the boughs were just the boughs of the trees, the branches, they were just falling off them. They were just dropping to the ground. And they couldn't explain it. They had no idea why until they put the trees under the microscope and they noticed something 
drastically different between the biosphere trees and the normal, normal trees. The biosphere trees lacked the presence of what scientists call stress wood. They developed no stress wood and they're trying to work out like why did they never develop any stress wood in their boughs which allowed them to even just carry the weight of their own branches. Here's why. What happened in the biosphere? The absence of wind. And so you can only develop stress wood in trees if they're blown about by the wind. And these little biosphere trees had grown up in the absence of wind all their life and the boughs are falling off. Hey, have you ever met a biosphere human? (laughs) What do they look like? Fragile. Easily knocked about. What if in the uncertainty you're facing today, God's merely developing stress wood? Developing the very things, the strength that you need to endure not only this trial that he was carrying you through, but the trials that will come. If uncertainty is nothing new, then there will be some and he's just merely growing you into the sort of tree of greatness that you should be. So not only is uncertainty nothing new, it's the very thing that you need to be a person of greatness. And so some of you now are saying, well, how does that work? Let's come back to the first question. You've got to ask yourself, is it possible that God is in control of my life even though he doesn't feel like he's present or active? You see, how you answer that question this morning is all the difference in the world as to whether you are a person that is radiant and beautiful and different and countercultural and the sort of person who cuts through life like a hot knife through butter. So here's some of the ways that you can answer that question and some reflections of what I see in this passage here. Come with me to Mark 14, verse 18. While they're reclining at the table, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, One of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. Verse 19, they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. Here's here's the first thing you need to do. You need to understand the difference, that there is a difference between believing in God and believing that God. Believing in God and believing that God. When they turn around and go, surely not me, here's, here's what's happening in that. They're suddenly realizing that God's agenda is different from their agenda. That's not the way that we had these plans. We're in the startup. We're we're going good, Jesus. It's all good. We're with you. And what you begin to see as you will trace out the life of these disciples heading to Easter is that so much of their wrestle is that their plans, their intentions, their hopes for Jesus and who he really is are two radically different things. Simon the Zealot wanted the restoration of the, of the, the, the religious elite yet again. Some wanted the Romans to be overthrown by Jesus. Some, do you remember the passage in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus had resurrected and he's teaching them for 40 days resurrected, right? And the the last thing they say after 40 days worth of teaching, and he does all that, they then turn to him and said, "Uh, so now are you going to restore Israel? (laughs) Remember that? I love that they're still like dopey even after the resurrection. I can relate to that. They just don't get it, do they? Because... And it's what happens with us. There's always anxieties when we equate God's agenda with our agenda. Does that make sense? There's always an anxiety when, and if you look at it throughout the Bible, we saw it in Elisha the other week, 
in Elijah. The other week we see it in Jonah. We see whenever the great biblical characters get despondent, it's always at that expectation gap between what they thought God was going to do and what he actually did do. Guys, there's a difference between believing in God and believing that God. And what I mean by that is that so often we say that we're believing in God, but really we're believing that God might get me out of these circumstances. We believe that God might stop the pain that's happening in our life. We're believing that God might solve the problem for us. You ever had that feeling or is it just me? We're often waiting for God to do something to us or for us. I'm wondering why he doesn't send the chariots of fire like he did for Elisha. We essentially were saying, Lord, why don't you remove the problem rather than saying, Lord, please make me the sort of person that knows how to deal with this problem. Believing in God versus believing that God. The disciples were believing that that God would do a whole heap of things in Jesus. Here's the other thing. Here's how you find some certainty and uncertainty. You have to realize that Certainty actually completes itself on the other side of commitment. Certainty completes itself on the other side of commitment. You see, we're all here, we're listening to this because we want some certainty, right? We, we want to know what's happening. We want to know, that's what the average person wants to know. We, we live in a world where we want the certainty before the commitment. We want to know, we want to know, am I, I want to buy a house, am I going to get the pay rise in order for that to afford it? We want to know that I've thought of a great product and it's going to take hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest and make this happen. But I don't know, will it work in the market? We want to know if this person is going to turn out all right with me, that they're not going to be a nightmare partner for me down the track. You ever been there with those sorts of questions? We want, and here's what we want, we so often want certainty on the front side, not the back side of commitment. We want to know beforehand. We want to know how it all works. And where is the faith in all of that? You see, every commitment decision, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, by the way, this is just as big a problem for non-Christians. Every decision to commit is a faith decision. I think I told you guys, right, that before I married Kristen, um, I I did up a weighted average matrix of all the things that I loved about her. Yeah. Dead set. It's the accountant in me. I can't get rid of it. So, so loves God. That got that got a weighting of ten. You know, picks her fingers occasionally. That got a weighting of one, right? And so I, I, I tried to, I, I, I tried to do a weighted average matrix over in a spreadsheet to see if she's the right person to marry. What did I want? I wanted certainty on the front side of commitment. I'm certain she's the right one for me now. I'm certain that, you know, as my uncle said, Sam, you don't need a weighted average matrix. Sounds like she's a gift from God. Treat her that way and you can't go wrong. So we want certainty on this side, the front side of commitment. But realistically, certainty completes itself on the back side of that. Remember Hebrews 11.8 where it says, Abraham, even though he didn't know where he was going, hashtag uncertainty, got up. And went to the place that he would later receive as his inheritance. We want to know the inheritance back here. (laughs) We want it all to stack up up here. Abraham got up, went to the place that he later would receive as as his inheritance. Now, if that's the case, if you can only find 
the sort of certainty on that backside of commitment because that's what we saw here in this passage. You want to see this principle lived out. It's in the great interaction that we see between Peter and Jesus. At the end of, as this passage continues, you see Jesus then say to the disciples, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if, even if everyone else falls away, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and, then, and then it says, verse 31, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And Jesus says to him, yes, tonight, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. It said he said emphatically. Why would someone be emphatic about it? Because they're certain. He had a certainty on this side of commitment. I'm certain, I'm certain, I'm not going to leave you. And Jesus says, sure, buddy, just wait till tonight and see what happens. And that's what happens, right? You see, you can have a certainty on this side of commitment, but it's a pseudo-certainty. It's a fragile certainty. But when you get to this certainty on the other side of commitment, on the other side of commitment, it's a strong certainty. It's a steadfast certainty. It's a sort of certainty that that same Peter that denied him three times was eventually crucified in Rome. Do you see Peter denying Christ when it came to that moment of his torturous death? No. Why? He had certainty on the backside of commitment, which leads me to my last point this morning. If that is the only place that you find true, strong certainty, then is that thing that you have committed to, the object of that committed, commitment, trustworthy? Is it the sort of thing that will hold up? You know, we, are, we, we see this. Jesus gave it to us in the passage here. The guys just denied it because they weren't, they weren't looking at it. They, they didn't hear it properly. They were thinking about what's happening to them. Verse 24, he says, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What we have there in that passage, that there is the seed. That there is the nuclear fuel rod that powered the Christians right throughout history to be people who are radically different. There was a future hope. There was a future certainty that Jesus said, even if these present trials are going to get, get against you, there is a future hope in all of this. And the reason why that is so significant, as you've heard me say, we are irreducibly hope-based creatures. Our present behavior is affected by our believed-in futures. Remember the widgets principle? Two ladies told to go into a concrete room with a flickering fluoro light. Lady number one here has to make widgets seven, hour, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. At the end of it, she gets, they say you're going to get paid $1 doing that for a year. Over in this room, concrete room, same room, flickering light, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, four a year. At the end of your work with widgets, you're going to get $15 million. Question class, who whistles while they work? We are irreducibly hope-based creatures. Our present behavior here, the widgets, is affected by our believed-in future. And what we will unpack in these coming weeks is the nature of that believed-in future. Guys, without an eternal horizon, here's what happens. Everyone operates with this ground note of anxiety. You think, like in Wipeout, 
If you're focused on every platform, every fist that's coming your way, then you're just living in a world of absolute tumultuous uncertainty. What I love about most of those people in Wipeout is they make it to the end. In the end, yeah, they're muddy and they're wet and they're in the water and they're out again, but they make it to the destination. And such is the Christian life. So, here's... I've asked a lot of questions this morning. Um, here's, the, here's the real one. Here's the one that you're probably asking. Here's the one that you might be asking if you are watching in, listening in on this. Any point in time we have people coming here thinking, I might, I might take up Christianity. I'm suffering from Trumpitis, the world's uncertainty, and it seems like they're, they're people that are stable. I might check this out. But the question you're going to be asking if you're that person or even if you are a Christian, is this. The question you're asking is, is it going to be worth it? Will it be worth it? If it's about that object of commitment and committing to Jesus, will it be worth it? You know, asking that question. Millions of people throughout history have, have died declaring that it's worth it, and yet we still ask that question. And you know how we go. We think, well, they had all these resources back then. I don't know, they're different people. They didn't think as adroitly as we do as a modern cultured person or they were just a bit more naive in their faith no they had exactly the same resources that you and i do today saying is it worth it that's like a six-year-old playing in mud puddles and you're saying to him let's go to disneyland and he turns to you and says will it be worth it i can't answer that question but i'm pretty sure it will be oh you want certain what you're really asking on that even when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ, what, what, you know what you're asking? You know what you want when you're asking that question? You want certainty on this side of commitment. You don't want certainty on the back side of commitment. And I can see a whole range of grey ahead people around here, our B52s as we call them. I'm so grateful for a cross-generational church because those are the people that have lived the life of faith and certainty on the other side of commitment. They're the people that have been through the pains and the stings and they've copped a wipeout style boxing glove in the face more than once throughout their lives and yet he still remained true to them. Look to them. Look to their examples in this place to answer that question for you. But I don't know. It's the same as a parent. It's, it's, I keep saying I want to write a book saying how to parent your first child like the third. <laughs> It's going to be a hit. How to, parent your th- how to parent your first child like the third. Mikey, you'd understand this, right? You know, it's different. When you have your third child. You know, first child, they puke everywhere. You've got to take them to emergency. You think the world's falling down. The third child, they puke everywhere. You, just, you don't put the rubber gloves on anymore. You just wipe it off with your own hand and your shirt and you go to work, right? can't answer whether or not it's going to be worth it for you but i can show you people that live with a poise the same sort of poise and gravity and unshakability like a parent of three kids is compared to a parent of one or their first millions of people have demonstrated that if you make the commitment even in spite of the uncertainty to Jesus Christ. If, is God in control? Let's come to that question. Is he in control even though he doesn't seem active? You know what? There's one person who asked that question and it was Jesus Christ himself. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Where are you in this? I thought if I'm with God, then we're supposed to be winning, right? I thought if I'm with God, there's not supposed to be the uncertainty. I thought if I'm with God, that we're not supposed to go through the pain. Friend, at the least, may that give you comfort this morning. When we look to the cross at Easter and as we get ready for that season, we can see that if, if it is true for Jesus Christ, the paradox of the way that we find certainty in uncertainty, then it must be true to us. It must be the reason why John Newton can say in this incredible verse, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything he sends must be necessary for your life. And everything that you feel he's withholding from you this morning mustn't there can be a certainty in uncertainty the rise of the christian faith is proof of that uncertainty is nothing new it may very well be the vehicle that transforms you into a person of greatness as to whether or not that happens is your choice this week but as we come to discover certainty in the midst of uncertainty, how does that happen? Maybe you're going to have to hang around a little bit longer with us over the next couple of weeks as we unpack the side effects of hope. Let's pray. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.